Good morning. We are going to let uh, these musicians find a seat as they have more work to do today. We are so thankful for them. I'll tell you one thing you can never say about Easter, and that is that it's subtle. Uh, it is, and it shouldn't be. It was not subtle uh, over 2,000 years ago. It is certainly not subtle today. We are so thankful that you are here with us today. Uh, my name is Chris Hodge. For those of you who haven't been here since last Easter, I'm a new pastor here on staff, and it is good to meet you, and I am glad you are here. What a joy. Now, I've been thinking this week about things we believe and things we believed as children, and what came to mind were a lot of food-related beliefs that we had as children that we grew out of. Let me give you just three. One, that eating watermelon seeds would mean that watermelons would grow in your stomach. Number, number two, that if you swallowed a piece of gum, it would stay in your system for seven years. I, I sometimes feel like all the Easter candy I've been eating is going to stay with me for seven years, but in a very different way. And thirdly, and probably most famously in my childhood, that if you drink a Coca-Cola with Pop Rocks, your stomach will explode. <laughs> Interestingly, we don't believe any of these things anymore. Why? Because we have examined them and changed our views based on evidence. I want us to think about that idea of things we believe and then how those beliefs change as we come to our Easter text this morning. We find it in John chapter 20. We're going to read verse 1 through 10, uh, and then verse uh, 19 down through uh, verse 29. I invite you to listen as I read God's Word for us. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid Him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes, and then picking up on... Verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thus ends the reading of our text. You may be seated as we recognize our need for God's help when we study His Word. Let's do that in prayer. Heavenly Father, we love You and thank You for how kind You are, how good You are, how gracious You are to us. We pray even now that Your Spirit will help us. Will help us think about what we truly believe. And O Lord, may Your Spirit help us see what we need to believe. What will give us great hope and joy if we believe. That Your Spirit will help us believe in Jesus Christ. I pray... Oh, Spirit, that You help me, that I will speak Your Word for the good of Your people and for Your praise, honor, and glory, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen. As we look at this text this morning, we are going to be thinking about the process of changing or growing in belief. In this text, we see that There is one kind of belief at the beginning of the text, and by the end of the text, there is a very different kind of belief. And we want to look at how that happens, and we want to consider how that happens even today in our own minds, in our own hearts. And so we're going to look very quickly at four different things. One, we're going to look at the truth of an original belief. Secondly, we're going to look at the process of re-examining belief. Thirdly, we're going to look at what happens when we correct our belief. And lastly, we want to consider how we can be blessed in our belief. So we're going to look at all four of these. First of all, we want to talk about original belief. When we begin this story, there is a belief, an operation that we need to consider. And it actually is foreshadowed even in the text uh, when it says in verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. You see, here we have a story of a woman who we know from other accounts is among other women who are coming to the tomb of Jesus. And they all share a common belief, and that is simple, that Jesus is dead. If you go back to Dickens' uh, famous work, The Christmas Carol, it it begins, Bob Marley was dead. There was no doubt about it. 
And for these women, there was no doubt about their belief that the state of Jesus, the man who they had seen work miracles, the man that they had heard speak so beautifully and helpfully and understanding who God was and how to live for Him, that He had been crucified, that He had been tortured, that He had been killed, that He laid in a tomb. There was no doubt about that belief. Their belief was simple, and it's foreshadowed in that text when it says that Mary came while it was still dark. You see, her belief was all darkness, no hope, no joy. And that's where she began. Now, as we continue to read the story, we find that that original belief is challenged. It's challenged immediately as she comes because the stone has been removed from the entrance of this tomb. And that means that something is beginning to disconnect in her mind. But her original belief is still there. Notice when she goes to the disciples... She says, not Jesus has been raised from the dead, but she says someone has taken his body. You see, this was a concern. It was a concern in that time and that period that sometimes grave robbers would disturb a body. It was such a special concern in this case that we know that the Roman authorities had enabled people to post a guard and put a seal on the stone that covered up the tomb. And so something was amiss, but yet her foundational belief held. There is a dead body somewhere. It's just not in the tomb. Now, why do I start there? Because we often think when we come to a a big celebration like Easter that people come in with essentially no, no central belief or they come in already believing in Jesus. But the reality is we come in with hundreds of different beliefs. Some of you have a belief about Jesus that goes something along this line. Jesus probably existed. He probably was a good teacher. He probably was a decent guy. But he definitely died. And for you, that's your belief. You see, while Christians call it unbelief, it is a belief. It's just a belief in something else. Or you may be sitting here and you may be one of the many that are thinking, I really don't even know that Jesus existed. But you see, that's a belief. You believe that, that Christianity and really all other religions are simply a manifestation of wish fulfillment about how we would like there to be more to life. We would like there to be meaning and significance But you see, that's your belief, that's your conviction. You're sure that all there is is what you can see, what you can touch, what you can feel, what you can study. And that's your original belief. But I want us to see in this story that John, the writer, enables us to see it doesn't stay there. It doesn't stay with that original belief. What happens? Well, we see... uh, re-examination of that original belief. We see it really in the characters of Peter and John. When Mary goes and tells them that the dead body of Jesus has been moved, we can only imagine what happened inside of them. 
Now, I can't speak for all men, but I am a man. And so let me just talk about what happens to me when someone tells me something that is upsetting. Adrenaline kicks in. And when adrenaline kicks in, I both get upset and mad at the same time, right? I know that doesn't happen to any other men here. You, you hear something upsetting. I mean, Peter and John, they had lived with Jesus for three years. They had followed him. They had given their life to him. And they were devastated that Jesus was crucified and was died. But they were not going to put up with somebody messing with his dead body, with dishonoring this person that they loved. And their adrenaline just starts pumping. We can see it in the way the story explains how they got there. They began to run. Now, as an older guy, I don't run much. But uh, it turns out my knee just doesn't appreciate it at all. But in the first century, Jewish men would not have been seen jogging through the streets of Jerusalem. This was just not kosher, literally. Uh, it was not something that they would have done because it, it was an affront to the dignity of men and all of this. But we see their adrenaline is pumping and, and they need to know what happened. They need to investigate. And so they end up running to the tomb. And I've always enjoyed the fact that the writer of this account has to mention who got there first. <laughs> you know, and, and I got to tell you, there's a lot of ink spilled about what that means. There have been people who have allegorized that and all the rest. I just think John remembered it vividly. And he's like, yeah, I beat him. Now, most people believe it's because John was probably younger than Peter. Unfair advantage, I suppose. So we can say, for those of you who are runners, they both won their age group, right? <laughs> you know, in terms of the race to the tomb. But they're running. Why? Because they need to know what in the world has happened. And then we see all of this attention in the story about these cloths. Why is that such a big deal? Have you ever wondered that if you've read this story before? And you're like, why do they make such a big deal about the linen cloths, about the sweatband or the headcloth? Why are we making such a big deal about that? Well, it's because it's part of the process. The text tells us that when John got to the tomb, that he glanced in but didn't go in. But Peter, even though he was slower, he was, he was much bolder, and he just goes right in. And the word for seeing the cloths really can be translated examined. You see, Peter was like one of the many TV detectives. He was probably brushing his chin. He was like, hmm, hmm, what is, what is going on here? What, what's the situation? Why are these cloths still here? Why is that sweatband folded up so neatly over there? And you know what was going through his mind? He was examining the evidence. And then John comes in and he does the same. He sees the same thing. Why is that so important? Well, if you were an average first century, uh, you know, uh, grave robber in Jerusalem, there are a couple things you would not have done. One, you would not have unwrapped the dead body so you could carry a naked body through the streets that you decided to steal. Secondly, you wouldn't have left behind the cloths and the spices, which were very valuable. Back to Dickens' great story 
uh, about poor old dead Marley, we see that later in the story, when the ghost of Christmas future comes, we actually see people effectively selling the death clothes and the bed clothes and other things of Ebenezer Scrooge because in a society that is a, a subsistence living economic world, you don't throw away things of value. And so if you were a grave robber, you wouldn't have left money on the table. You see, that's what Peter and John are thinking. They're like, why? Why would somebody who stole the body, and if, if somebody who was a follower of Jesus stole it, they certainly wouldn't have dishonored it by unwrapping it. In other words, the evidence did not add up. It didn't add up. It says it was so overwhelming that John saw it and believed. In other words, in his mind, he began thinking, wait a second, if it wasn't a grave robber and it wasn't a follower, then it had to be a third option. And John immediately thought, he's been risen from the dead. He's been resurrected. And we don't know how he came to the conclusion. God gave that to him. But do we do that with our original beliefs? Are we willing to examine those foundational principles that we believe? That all, we, all there is is what we can see or touch or study. Do we examine that? Do we ask the question, is that true? Does the evidence match that theory? Or perhaps your theory is much more broad and simple. Your theory is, I'm okay just like I am. If I just give it my all, try my best, then I'm sure that everything is going to work out just fine. Have you examined that? Have you examined the idea that you try your best? Don't examine it too carefully. Or you'll find out, actually, I sort of give a half effort all the time. Don't examine it too carefully. Don't ask the question, what do I mean by working out okay? You see, when we begin to re-examine the things that we believe, it causes us to adjust our ideas. Are we honest enough? Are we courageous enough to examine our own beliefs. I know you're sitting here thinking, I came into church today, I figured that the bald guy would simply be saying, believe it or else. But no. We want you thinking. Why do you believe what you believe? Now you say, well, isn't he trying to convince people to believe in this Jesus raised from the dead? Yes. So why would he want people to actually think about it? Because the evidence is so clear. Not just in this text, but throughout the Scriptures. And I encourage you that if you were willing to examine not just this passage, but all of the accounts that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give of the life, the teaching, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, I believe that evidence, I know that evidence will hold up but are you willing to examine what it is that you believe? Thirdly, we see that they correct. We see a correction of belief. In other words, whenever we encounter evidence that is so strong, so compelling, we don't continue believing the same thing. We change 
what it is that we believe. We correct our belief. And we see this happen to John, as we've already mentioned. We see it happen to all the disciples. Why? Because Jesus appears to them. Now, I have to point this out because it's one of my favorite things. Notice that twice when Jesus appears to these people, one on that first Sunday when Jesus was raised from the dead, and then secondly on the next Sunday when he comes back again for the special encounter with Thomas, that it says explicitly that the doors were locked. Now, I love that. I love that. Why? Because it means that Jesus, is, Jesus was not just resuscitated, that is, brought back from a state of deadness into the same state he was in before, but it points for us that he came back in what's called a resurrection body, which while similar to our bodies that we all have here sitting in this room, it is also different. It is different in the sense that he can go through a locked door. Now, I don't know about you, but that's exciting to me. Because the Bible goes on to say that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. That means that what's true of Jesus in the resurrection is going to be true of all who believe in him and end up being resurrected. And going through locked doors seems pretty cool to me. You know, I'm kind of I'm hoping that I can, you know, be here like one minute and like be in my easy chair the next minute, right? I would have been on time today had I been able to do that, right? You know, my wife's like, they're probably getting worried. I'm like, I bet they don't even notice I'm not there, <laughs> right? But had I been, I hope so. I don't know. I'm just, that's just something for you to think about. But when Jesus appears before them, there's no more question. There he is. The risen Jesus. Thomas, who had all those doubts, when Jesus showed up, he doubted no longer. There he is. There he is. How can I deny the reality of his physical presence, of him standing right there, of him speaking to me? But I want us to notice what he does. He says, peace be with you. But then he shows them his scars. Now, I was told years ago that chicks dig scars. Now, that was a skateboarder who said that to me. And I think that once you get a certain number, you just have to begin believing that. He should probably examine that core belief. But nonetheless, that's not why Jesus was showing his, his scars. He wasn't saying, wow, look at my scars. Like, you know, I did a gnarly, you know, ollie there. And then I, you know, no. Why would Jesus show his scars? He showed his scars because they were not only an evidence that he was the same person who hung on the cross, the same one who had a spear thrust into his side, but it is a reminder to them and to us that Jesus did something for us. You see, those wounds still visible on the risen Christ are an evidence that our Rejection of God, our rebellion against God, our ignoring of God, our running away from God, that all of these, according to the Bible, deserve judgment. They deserve God to be unhappy with us, to condemn us, 
Jesus in his resurrected appearance to these disciples says, see these wounds? Do you know what these wounds mean? It mean they mean that you can now be right with God because the punishment for my rebellion, my sin, my rejection, my ignoring of God, it's been paid for in the wounds of Jesus Christ. And He shows them, and it's so loving. And what happens? Their belief has now been corrected. Notice, it says they rejoice, which is exactly what Jesus told them would happen in a passage we looked at just last week, that for a little while you won't see me, but then you'll see me and your joy will be full. There it is in the fulfillment. They see him, they rejoice. Their belief that he, he was dead is now gone and a new belief has taken its place that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. We even see it with Thomas in this exalted sense who goes beyond the disciples in one sense. When Jesus calls him on his bluff, showing that he knew exactly what he had said, he's like, you want to put your fingers in the wounds in my hand? You want to place your hand in the wound in my side? And we don't know whether Thomas did it. Some writers say, well, I mean, Jesus did command him. He probably did. Almost everybody else is like, yeah, I don't think so. I think Thomas was confronted with some really radical new evidence, and he didn't need any more, any more support for that uh, he says something amazing. He says, my Lord and my God. Now that's very important in the book of John. It's very important. It means that Thomas not only had his beliefs changed, corrected if you will, but that he understood things clearly. By saying, my Lord and my God, he wasn't just saying, you have a right to tell me what to do. That's what Lord means. You're the one who directs my life. You're the one who can tell me where to go and what to do. Which is, to be honest, why most people want to keep their original beliefs of disbelief in Jesus Christ. Because they know if I believe in him, Jesus will probably tell me what to do. And the answer to that is, yeah, he absolutely will. But what he'll tell you to do is, is for your best. It's to help you be the person God created you to be. It's to enable you to live the life of fullest peace and joy. So yes, but then he also says, my God. Fulfilling the beginning of John's gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The penny drop for Thomas my Lord, my God. You know, as a matter of fact, in the very next verse, which I probably should have read, uh, well, we'll skip over one verse. In verse 31, just two verses past where I finished, the Apostle John, when he's talking about why he wrote all these things down, he says this, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing that you may have life in his name. Here in this story, John says, here's somebody who got it. Here's somebody who rejected their original belief, examined the evidence, and then corrected their belief so that it was in alignment with what is true, that Jesus is Lord and God. But lastly, I want us to see that there is a blessing on offer here for you and for me. Notice what Jesus says there to Thomas. 
He says, have you believed because you have seen me? Now, you can translate it either as a statement, you have believed because you have seen me, or a question as the ESV has done here. Jesus is acknowledging that, that this change in Thomas's belief has happened because of the physical presence of Jesus. But then listen to what he says. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen. Why does he say that? Because everybody reading the book of John had not seen Jesus. None of us sitting here have seen Jesus. And Jesus says there is a blessing for people who are willing to accept the eyewitness testimony of others who had seen rather than needing to see it themselves. You see, that's why it's so important to examine the evidence of this book and to ask, is this reliable evidence? Is it true? is what it says, accurate. And I believe it is, and I'd love to talk to you about that more. I'd love to show, it, show you more about that. I'd love you to be in a community or in a village group where you can learn more and more about the reliability of what this book says. But Jesus says that there is a blessing for everyone who believes, even though they weren't an eyewitness, because they believe the testimony of one. The Apostle Peter says it this way, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 8, he says, Though you have not seen Him, that's Jesus, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What is the blessing of those who believe without seeing? Joy, hope, a future salvation, a relationship with God. Jesus says, blessed are everyone who believes. Is that blessing yours? Or are you still stuck on some pre-existing belief? Are you still thinking that sure, I'm sure there's some physical way that gum stays in my body for seven years? You know? Or that there may be a harvest of watermelon in the future. You're still hanging on to that belief. You haven't asked, is it true? Is it accurate? Does it fit with the evidence? Because if you believe, if you believe in what this account tells us, there is a life of joy. Not just until you finish your time on this planet but for all eternity, stretching as long as you can imagine, are you willing to doubt your doubts? Are you willing to examine the evidence? Are you willing to be corrected in your belief and be blessed by believing? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for how good you are to us in giving us your word. We pray even now that you will enable us to be honest with ourselves about what we really believe. That we will hold it up to some examination, to some scrutiny. And that we will examine the evidence of Your Word. And oh Lord, I pray that by Your grace that You will enable us to see the compelling, the hopeful and joyful reality of the truths that are here written, that we might enjoy all of the blessing 
of believing in the risen Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.